0: Hey, welcome. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my joy and privilege we would open God's Word this morning with you and for you. And if you're a guest with us or you missed last weekend because it was the holidays and you're out of town, uh, we actually put a pause on our Roman series, and we've launched into a new series focused on Advent, entitled Isaiah and the Incarnation. And Isaiah has given us some wonderful, rich, beautiful passages of Scripture that focus on and prepare our hearts for the advent or the coming or the arrival of Christ. And so if, uh, for those of you who hearers of Isaiah's day, they would have been looking forward to Jesus's first coming. But for us, of course, we are looking back to Jesus's coming and looking forward to his coming again. And so Pastor Rob, he led us out in that series last week, looking at Isaiah 40 and how God promises comfort to his people. And this morning, uh, if you get your Bibles with you, you can open up to Isaiah chapter nine. And as you turn in there, uh, how many of you guys are getting ready for Christmas? Ready to go? Uh, for us here in the steak household, uh, my wife—it's probably—it it, is—it is the most wonderful time of the year for her. She has lots of joys and traditions. Uh, that she's put into place for us as a family through the years, and I absolutely love it. So, of course, you know, last weekend we had to get the Christmas tree, and that was actually quite an adventure. Uh, We can go, we can tell you that later on. But we did get the the Christmas tree, uh, lots of decorations for that. Julia's been putting up decorations this week around the house. Uh, We love to, of course, bake Christmas cookies. I'm sure you guys like to do that. Uh, One of the things that we love to do is we get in our PJs, and we get our hot chocolate and we huddle up in the van and we ride around Tallahassee for a couple of hours and look at all the lights. Uh, we've got a, a whole map that's ready. If you guys want that, I'd be happy to give that to you. Uh, it goes back even to when our youngest daughter, our senior, oldest daughter, Abigail, was really young. And she would, we would ride around the, house, or around the town and she'd be like, they're ready for Christmas. They're ready for Christmas. They're not ready for Christmas. And we had no idea what she was talking about. And then we figured out, oh, it's the lights. It's the lights. And so we've done that tradition every year for a long time. Uh, Hopefully you guys got that Four Oaks Kids Christmas devotional that Shannon and Julia put together. That's always been a joy for us to do each Christmas. And uh, last but not least, probably the thing that happens most around our house, I'm sure you guys are familiar with this, is the Christmas movies and the Christmas music. So for us, Hallmark started Christmas movies the week before Halloween, and you guessed it, it was on in our house, which is kind of crazy. But alongside of the movies, there's, of course, Christmas music that we love to play around our house. And there's kind of two different categories of music. So there's one, this is the, you know, the Jesus carols, right? The Christmas carols. And then there's what I would call like cultural Christmas songs. So things like, you know, rocking around the Christmas tree, or I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, which of course, we watched last weekend as a family. Um, but these types of Christmas songs, are I would say they're more like the feeling of Christmas, right? So the chestnuts roasting on an open fire and the mistletoe and all that kind of stuff. Um, but by the end of the song, you sort of realize that the songwriter and the, the singer, they're not really singing about Jesus at all, are they? Uh, they're really more talking about and singing about this feeling, this happy feeling that goes on in this Christmas time. And even our our Christmas cards, you guys know this, it kind of tries to capture that feeling. I don't know how many of you guys have done this, but we have taken many a Christmas photos in October, right? And we've got our Christmas sweaters on and the sweater really is living out its name. We're sweating profusely and we're bribing our kids with money and ice cream or whatever else to put on that half-baked sort of smile during October in front of a barn that we're at on vacation two months before Christmas to capture that feeling, right? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You've done it too. Well, what if, though, what if the meaning of Christmas is not just that sort of surfacey, happy-go-lucky feeling? What if it's actually much deeper and, I would say, much darker than that? What if Christmas isn't just to sort of highlight the happy feelings of life, but to shine light on the darkness of life as well? You know, in the Bible, um, Christmas doesn't sort of come on the triumphant shoulders of our put-together lives. It actually shines into the gloom of the darkness that we just can't get ourselves out of. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And along with that, um, I would say Christmas is sort of like split up into two different groups of people. There's some who just simply sort of enjoy Christmas uh, because of its feeling of, of Christmas. And, and I'm not, you know, denying that that's important. Um, it's good. But there's a second group of people, a people that God invites us to be who don't just enjoy the feeling of Christmas, but they desperately need the Savior of Christmas. And David McLemore, he says this. He says, Christmas speaks of a hope beyond this world that came into this world to change this world. i read it one more time. Christmas speaks of a hope beyond this world that came into this world to change this world. In other words, the difference in ultimately our experience of Christmas every year, and certainly this year, is where our hope really lies. Is it just hoping, is it hoping in sort of a happy feeling, hoping in ourselves, or is it trusting in God and his promises? That rock-steady experience and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is here. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9 and how the prophet Isaiah invites us into this hope of a child shining light into the darkness. And so you guys can go ahead and stand there with me. Uh, We're going to read these first seven verses together. And the last couple of verses in particular to be very familiar with. We're going to read this whole section together. Listen to God's word to us. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, we want to come to you this morning, longing within our hearts, a desire for you to break into the shadows of darkness with your light, that you would sink deeply within our hearts an understanding that you are with us, you are for us, and you are working all things together for our good. And while the gloom and the darkness and the pain is certainly real, you are real. God, would you please do that through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take your seats, and as you do, uh, today's sermon is entitled, From Gloom to Glory. And we're going to talk about three points, uh, gloom, grace, and glory. Pretty simple. So we're going to start with gloom. Isaiah chapter 9 begins with three sort of really foreboding words in, in verse 1 here. Uh, it, there, it talks about gloom. He says contempt. Um talks about anguish. And then later on in verse 2, he sort of like doubles down on it. He says that there were people who were walking in darkness, and they dwelt in a land Of deep darkness. And if you look back at chapter 8, you can see why. The great nation of Assyria is coming. Uh, This nation is known for their brutality. They're kind of the ISIS of our day. And they were just absolutely brutal and vicious in the way that they would destroy their enemies. And as we see in chapter 8, this is ultimately a part of God's judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. And as a result, as you can imagine, the people are afraid. They are powerless as that enemy sort of only seemed to grow in strength and tighten their grasp on the nation. The people had definitely lost that happy feeling. They didn't know if God was for them, if he was against them, or if he had simply abandoned them altogether. That's why these words are used here. Gloom, anguish, contempt, darkness. Have you ever felt that way? As many of you know, this past week was a very difficult time for the Four Oaks family. In fact, in this very room, there were two funerals, lost loved ones. And it just is a painful reality that reminds us that we live in a world that's filled with sin and sorrow and suffering and even death. And our hearts ache when we experience that, right? But here's what I really appreciate about God and his word. He doesn't hide the gloom. He doesn't hide the realities of our brokenness. In fact, he speaks to it, and he welcomes us to speak to him about it as well. I'm not sure if you were here this past Sunday, but we read a few verses from the book of Lamentations, and it's a whole book inviting God's people to lament or to speak to God about the brokenness that's both around us and even within our own souls, it's an opportunity to lament, is to, to really cry out to the Lord, uh, to bring to him our hearts, to, to talk to him about how we experience this darkness and this gloom and this pain and this brokenness. And if you're not really familiar with lament, um, to be honest, I wasn't really either. I hadn't ever done it before until about four or five years ago. Um, but the reality is the, the, the scriptures actually have quite a few opportunities for people to lament before God. Here's the amazing thing. I, mean, I used to think that it was not allowed for me to talk to God about pain. But God actually wants us to be honest about it. He wants us to talk about the gloom and the darkness. He wants us to talk about our experience of, of, the, of the sorrow and the suffering and the sin and even the death. D.A. Carson says this, He says, there is no attempt in scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. Theirs is not a faith that leads to dry-eyed stoicism, but to a faith so robust it wrestles with God. Isn't that amazing, right? That God invites us to wrestle with him. The God of the universe invites us to cry out to him. He doesn't want us to minimize or to, you know, ignore or sort of sweep our pain under the rug. No, he, he says, I want you to bring this to me. I want you to lament before me. I'm big enough to handle all of your struggles. If you don't believe me, I want us to read Psalm 13. I'll turn over here real quick for us. This is a Psalm of David. But there's a lot of psalms of lament written by David. Listen to what David says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You hear David's cries, right? He brings all of his concerns, all of his questions, all of his longings, all of his fears, Lord. He cries out honestly before God. He brings not just part of his heart, but all of his heart to God. Here's what's really important. For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are of faith, we don't stop there. Let's read the rest of the psalm, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, lament is not just crying out to God, but it's also clinging to God. It's clinging to his promises. It's clinging to his character. It's looking back and seeing, God, you were faithful to me. You rescued me and I'm trusting for you to do it again and again. He invites us to bring all of our pain, all of our sorrow, all of our gloom to him, to the only one who is perfectly wise, to the only one who is infinitely loving, to the only one who is ever present in our times of trouble. Saying, God, I'm bringing this to you and I'm trusting in you. I'm clinging to you. That your grace will invade my gloom. That your light will pierce my darkness. That brings us to point two. We don't want to talk about gloom. We also want to talk about grace. That even in the midst of judgment, um, in this passage, Isaiah has a word from God to the faithful remnant inside this largely faith, unfaithful nation. And I love how the, the chapter starts, right? It starts with, but. That is a wonderful word in the gospel. It always comes in just the right places. You know, when God tells us something awful, a lot of times as a result of what we've done, he often follows it with the word, but. But. You're unfaithful, but I'm faithful. You're sinful, but I sent a savior. You're in the midst of gloom, but I'm going to come crashing into your darkness with the light of my marvelous grace. That's the gospel. And that's what we are invited to preach to ourselves this morning. That's what Isaiah is inviting the people of God to do, to be honest about their gloom, but then to trust that God's grace is coming. Who are these people that are walking in darkness that are talked about? Let's read this passage. Let's read the first couple of verses again. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Let's get a little geography lesson going on here. So this area of Israel is the northern part. And if you know anything about the geography of Israel, it's sort of hemmed in by sea, Mediterranean Sea on the west, Jordan River on the east. It's also got mountains all around it in such a way that the only way to come and invade Israel is through the north. And so the Galileans, the people in the north, were very familiar with invasion. They were poor, they were broken, they knew what it was like to suffer, and also this typically was a mix of Jews and Gentiles, so the people who weren't the chosen, quote unquote, people of God, are up in the north, and they're the first ones to experience the pain. But here's what God's saying in this passage of Scripture. He says, those of you who have suffered the most, that's where I'm coming first. Those who took the brunt of every invasion of the armies will be the first to see the light dawning out ahead. My kingdom, it comes to the broken, to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the needy. And as we see in the New Testament, it's exactly what happens. Jesus comes first to the people of Galilee, he brings his message of healing and hope, his preaching and his ministry of miracles to that group of people. And as as, as Matthew 4 records, he says, this was to fulfill Isaiah chapter 9. What's interesting about this passage too is you, I don't know if you noticed this already, but these words are written as if they've already taken place. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light In other words, God's prophecy isn't a maybe from God. It is an assurance of God. It's like, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. No, God is saying to them, and he's saying to us, it shall be so. I'm coming in. I'm coming in for you. I'm coming here to rescue you. Your future is secure in me. My kingdom is coming on earth the way that is in heaven. The victory has already been won. God's grace is is here right now. The prophecy continues. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now here's why we can be sure that these prophecies come to fruition. It's because God says it and he will do it. It's not up to us. Everything is on God's side of the equation and we are just simply to wait to trust, to hold on to these promises. the people of God are to see this by faith. But as you know, it's hard to trust in the Lord sometimes, isn't it? You kind of come in like the foggy, you know, the foggy morning that we saw this morning, trying to see, trying to figure out what's going on, and God says, "Just trust that I'm with you. Trust that I'm coming for you." But sometimes we have to wait a long time. I mean, this prophecy is written, by the way, this is amazing, right? This prophecy is written over 700 years before Jesus comes. God's outside of space and time, <laughs> He knows what's coming. But for us, we're in the middle of it. We're that little spot on the timeline, and like, I don't see how this is gonna come to fruition. Sometimes we have to wait a few days, sometimes we have to wait a few weeks, sometimes we we'll have to wait a few years, sometimes we have to wait until Jesus comes again. This is incredibly hard sometimes, right? But God is inviting us to trust in him, that he's working behind the scenes to carry out the good purposes for us. He's bringing light into our darkness. Jesus has come and he will come again. We have two options as God's people. We can either look at our world and we can see all the darkness and find only hopelessness and shattered dreams and we can conclude that God's forgotten us. Or we can look at our present darkness and we can remember God's past mercies, his present grace and his future grace that all of his promises will come true. I want to to be clear here that we're to be honest about the reality of our darkness. That's lament. But the darkness for Oaks, the darkness for the people of God, isn't the greatest reality. Behind even the darkest of nights, the the bright light of Christ has shown. It is the most great reality in our lives for those who are in Christ. Uh, William Cooper, he struggled with tons of depression And he would write these truths over and over again to remind him that despite the darkness, he was in the light of Christ. And in one of his hymns, he said, behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. It takes trust to see that in the middle of the darkness, God is there. But that's what Isaiah was inviting his people to hold on to. And that's what God is inviting his people to hold on to today. We live in a fallen, broken world. There is darkness not only all around us, but, but right here as well. And, and it's hard, particularly around the holidays, right? You're reminded of those lost loved ones, of those, of those painful moments, and you, and you want to just experience that feeling of happiness, but you don't have it. God invites us to trust that in the middle of our sin and our brokenness and our mess and our pain, that he will step in. He will rescue us by his grace. Yeah, we're in darkness, but but the light is coming. And not just way off in the future, but I want to trust that even right now, right now I can experience your light. And here's what's really beautiful. As light increases Joy and rejoicing increases, as verse 3 talks about. It talks, Isaiah says, it's like the joy at the harvest time. These farmers, they've been waiting for harvest for, for months and months. They're, they're hoping, they're waiting that fruit will be born out. And then they get to rejoice when they get to reap the harvest. And some of you know what that's like when you've been waiting for a long time and then God comes through. Think of Byron and Jessica Caudill got married later on in life, and then been married for seven years, dealt with infertility, have not been able to have a little one. And then out of the blue, God brings them this little baby, Benjamin, that they can adopt. Just blown away by God providing for them, and it was that much sweeter when they would experience what they had longed for. It's also the joy here of Uh, in verse three where it says, they're glad when they divide the spoil. It's the picture of a battle and the soldiers after the battle are enjoying the spoil. We have a lot of battles, don't we? But God, when he brings the victory, he says, it's my grace that purchases that victory for you and I want you to step in and receive it uh, and um, sometimes, though, it comes in impossible, improbable ways. He says, uh, verse 4, he talks about this yoke and this oppression that they're experiencing. He says, but God is broken as on the day of Midian. If you guys know anything about uh, uh, the battle at, that t- took place at that time with Gideon, uh, he had, he had um, a few thousand soldiers in front of 220,000 Midianites. And God said, no, that's too many. Keep getting smaller, keep getting smaller. And it was down to 300 men. And God said, now now I got something to work with. He loves to work in impossible situations. If you are dealing with an impossible situation right now that you don't have any hope that this is going to come through for you, trust that God does his work like he did on the day of Midian, where the people didn't even have to pull out the sword out of their sheath. God provided a victory and destroyed all of their enemies. And we get tastes of that now. And one day, though, it says in verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, Tomo, every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, God doesn't just win one war. He wins all wars and puts wars to end. And we get to celebrate that victory as if it's our victory, because for those who are in Christ, it is. That's his grace. He wins the war, and we get to celebrate. We get to enjoy all the spoils. It's kind of like... This idea, what I'm talking about here is this already not yet sort of kingdom. If you've ever heard that phrase before. So in one sense, Jesus has come. He has established his kingdom. We are recipients of it. Jesus is reigning in our lives. We're beginning to see pockets of peace and joy. We're experiencing that even right here this morning. It's an already reality. We're to invite more and more of his kingdom right here, right now. And yet it's not here completely. Jesus hasn't yet returned, and so it's like a mountain range. That's what is going on here in Isaiah 9. So the people are looking out, and they're they're seeing God's kingdom coming. They can't figure out what's happening exactly. All they see is a lot of mountains. But then when you get up to that mountain range, then you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot of distance between each mountain. That's kind of our experience of God's kingdom. We experience a little bit of it at a time, and it gives us hope for the next day. It gives us longing for that fullness of day to come when we're experiencing darkness. We're to trust that his kingdom is coming by his grace. Now, How does this all come about? Or I should say, who brings it about? That brings us to point three. We've talked about gloom, we've talked about grace, and now I want us to talk about glory, specifically the glorious son of God, This is really the climax of this passage, starting in verse 6. Very familiar one to us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want us just to slow down. Don't just kind of like gloss over these words. I want us to slow down and really consider what's going on here. All the darkness, all the pain, all the brokenness, all the sadness, every difficulty that we faced in this life, the answer is in one child, one person, Jesus Christ. Ray Orland says God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. It's, just, it's ironic, isn't it? That God's way of waging war on the world is through a tiny little baby. What's God doing? He's overturning our expectations. See, it's part of his upside-down kingdom that God has ordered the world in such a way that weakness overcomes strength, that foolishness overcomes wisdom, that a child overcomes all evil that we experience. I want you to think about this. I want you to invite Christ into your story. It's an unlikely, improbable, incredible story of God's grace that when Christ comes, he makes everything right. When everything else in this world is failing, when when all of our best plans are found wanting, when, when we've reached the very end of what we can do, God says to us, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. It's for you. It's for me. He's for you. He's for me. Anyone can get in on this good news. It's an invitation to us to bring Christ into our story of gloom and bring his grace and give us hope of glory. So we know, though, this isn't just any child, right? This child is the son of God. He's glorious. And let's just meditate on these titles of what he is called in verse 6, which could go into depth into each one. But what I want you to notice briefly is that this list of titles sort of corresponds to the needs of our souls. So I want you to think right now about what is the need within your own heart right now? What do you long for more than anything else? And I want you to ask Jesus to be that for you as we go through this passage. Are you struggling to figure out life? Are you trying to figure out like what's going on? Do you need wisdom and counsel? Jesus says, I am your wonderful counselor. I have better advice than anything this world can give to you. And not only that, but but my advice is wonderful. It's amazing. It's wonderfully different from all of the yuck that we see and experience. I want want you to spend time in my word with me. I want you to listen to my voice. Listen to my counsel rather than the counsel of this world. How many of you are tired and worn out? How many of you feel like you've lost your way? Do you need strength to live life that's pleasing to the Lord? Jesus says, I am the mighty God. There's no greater power in all the universe than, than mine. My strength prevails over all armies, and my strength is not just physical strength for you all. That's really important. My strength is spiritual strength that enables you to keep taking one step at a time, keep trusting in me when you don't see everything in front of you. You're trusting one step at a time that I'm with you, that I'm for you, that I'm walking alongside of you. I'm gonna give you strength. I'm the mighty God. Are you burdened and discouraged? Do you feel alone? Jesus says, I am the everlasting Father. Now, obviously, he's not saying I'm God the Father. He is God the Son, but he has a fatherly sort of care for his people. John 14, he says, Disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In other words, I'm like a father for you. I provide gentleness and care and compassion and provision especially for those of you who have never known the love of a father. I want to be that for you. And his fatherhood is everlasting, as it says. John Piper, he says, you will never attend this father's funeral. He will never get old and senile and leave you like an orphan on your own. He says, you're in my family. I'm going to hold on to you. I'm never going to let you go. Come into my presence. Come into my arms. Receive that care from me. Last but not least, you're struggling to find peace in this world. You experience brokenness in your relationships. Uh, brokenness and a lack of, of peace. Anxiety just all around you. Jesus says, I'm the Prince of Peace. I came so that you so you could experience my peace and my my rest for your weary soul. I want you just to come to me. And not only that, but Jesus says, I'm, I'm not, I don't just bring peace. I'm the prince of peace. I have the authority to make it so. I have the authority to bring peace into your soul. A peace that surpasses understanding. I'm bringing that to you. Receive it from me. And the government shall be upon my shoulders. It's not upon yours. And I will one day establish peace forever and ever and ever. Everlasting peace with God and peace with one another and peace with the world and peace even within your restless, sin-sick soul. This is God's invitation to us this morning. Listen to Ray Orland. I love how he puts this so succinctly. He says, "Is the wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion. This is what lament is all about. We cry out honestly before God, we are so honest about our struggles and our hardships. And yet, as that passage just talks about, we cling to Christ and his promises, and not just the promises and just the attributes that are out there, but are for us right here. Personalize the promises. Personalize who Jesus is for you. He's not just the savior of the world. He's the savior for you. See, our words, they are important when we lament before God, but we've got to let Christ and his word be the most important, precious, powerful voice that influences our hearts and souls. I know that's hard. I know some of you have experienced a lot of darkness. I, wanna, I just want to invite you trust that Christ is here, trust that Christ is with you, trust that Christ is working for you. Don't lose heart. Our lives are hard, really hard. Our our, our sin is great, really great. Our our need is immense, so immense. But God's grace through Christ is greater still. He has broken into our darkness with his grace, and he is bringing his glory. There is no end to his supply for our needs. And that's why it says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, God's kingdom has come and it will come again and it is increasing. It doesn't just come and, and be, it's, it's coming and increasing. The more we experience of God's glory, the more his kingdom is expanding only rules Israel, he rules the world. And his rule isn't going to be like the Assyrians that there's war after war after war of brutality. No, he will end all wars. His kingdom will be filled with peace, with justice, with righteousness. And not just for a little while, but forevermore. All of his promises will be fulfilled. Do you believe it? Jeremy could in one of his songs, he says, God's kingdom is an everlasting reversal of all that is sad, dark, gloomy, and oppressive. Have you experienced gloom? I I don't know how much gloom or oppression or sadness you've experienced, but I want you to picture this. All of that gloom and sadness, God's glory just overwhelms it and throws it away so you forget all about it when he comes again. But as we know, God's kingdom is not yet fully realized, right? There's still more to come. And so Jesus invites us to live in sort of these two realities, the reality of brokenness and pain and sorrow and suffering and the reality of Christ, that we are in Christ and we're to receive his kingdom and proclaim his kingdom. And when we fail, which we will, we can remember that Jesus never fails. And when we come to him, he's saying, I'm coming to you. Listen to what David Mclemore says. He says, "We will never reach the limit of Jesus' strength." We will never exhaust his storehouses of grace. We will never out his patience. We will never run so far that he can't find us. We will never fail so hard that he can't redeem us. We will never fall so deep that he can't rescue us. His empire of grace will expand and expand and expand until the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, we're invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. And every taste we get of Christ is a foretaste of glory divine the message of the gospel, it's the meaning of Christmas, that it's from gloom to glory by way of God's grace every step of the way. And how can we be sure that this story is really coming true? End of verse 7, or it says this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's sort of the seal of God's promise to us. He says, it's not up to you, it's up to me. The Lord of hosts, that's that's an angelic army sort of term, that he's in charge of all of the armies. But I want to focus on the word zeal. It's an interesting word. It's actually used in a lot of different ways in Scripture. In the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, it's it's for the love that's burning between a husband and a wife, that zeal that they have for one another. In Isaiah 42, it talks about a a, a warrior that's sort of psyching himself up for battle. He's, He's ready for the big game, he's ready to jump in, right? It's used in Zephaniah, the fire of God's personality. It's also used of Christ when he talks about himself and he looks at the temple and he sees these people that are cast out of the temple by the money changers and the Pharisees. And he said, The zeal for your house will consume me. He's like, I'm committed to this. And that's what it's talking about. God's zeal shows us that he's not detached from our story, he's all in. He rescues us, not reluctantly or resentfully, but joyfully, exuberantly. He's not sorry that he got involved in your story. He's excited to deliver. He's excited to rescue. He's excited to restore. He's excited to bring his kingdom come on earth for you and for me the way it is in heaven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will keep his promises. Jesus was willing to come and die for his people. You can be sure he will come again to rescue his people and bring his people to himself. And all we got to do is wait. Wait for him. And this is what this Advent season is all about. The first candle is the candle of prophecy, the second candle is the candle of the way or the candle of light. Advent is about trusting in the light that's shining in our darkness, trusting in the child who came to bring light and who will one day come again. And in essence, just like the Christmas songs, there's two groups of people. There are those who need this child and those who don't. Those who say, you know, I'm doing just kind of fine on my own. I'm experiencing some victory in my life and I just am content with the feeling of Christmas. But there's a second group of people. If you feel weariness and darkness and gloom, if you need rest for your soul, if you feel worthless and you wonder if God really cares for you, if you are failing and you desire strength, if you are in the middle of sin and you say, God, please save me. This light, the light of Christ is for you. And the entry into God's glorious kingdom, if you've never received that light, is simply to say, I need you. And you might say, I, I, you don't know the absolute mess that I'm in. And Jesus says, ha, I want you to be my, I want to, I want to be, I want to be in that mess with you. Your mess is now my mess. Your sin is now my salvation for you. That is the invitation that's for us this morning. Let's pray.